Well, good morning to you all and a Merry Christmas. It's coming up in a few days, I trust you know, and which means another year ago, uh, gone by. And each year, the Sunday before Christmas, I typically do a special Christmas-themed message. And this year is no different. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark recently. We go verse by verse through a uh, book of the Bible. But we'll take a little break from that just for today, talk about something related to Christmas. But I do have a tie-in for our message. In the past three weeks, we've been in Mark chapter 10, and we've been looking at the, really the subject in those verses of money from the rich young ruler, Jesus teaching about wealth, the disciples wondering what kind of reward they will receive. Money has been on our minds lately. And we've learned that, yeah, it's true, God has amazing gifts in store for his children, but money can also sometimes keep people from their Heavenly Father. Money has the ability to easily capture a person's heart and blind them to the truth. And when you think about it, Hasn't the same thing kind of happened with Christmas? What is Christmas supposed to be about? As a good Christian, you all know the answer. You'll, you'll chime in. Of course, remembering the birth of Jesus. But for so many people, it's not really about that anymore. It's about money. Of course, money in the form of presents and gifts, sure. But it all comes back to money. And for a lot of people, money has once again blinded them to the truth. In this case, the true meaning of Christmas. Christmas has become a totally commercial holiday globally, but especially in America. A quarter of all personal spending takes place during the Christmas season. It's not even a day anymore. It's a season of of giving, right? And retail sales over this period surpass $600 billion, which is just insane. Most of this money is not spent on self, though. It's spent on others in the form of gifts. The tradition of gift-giving on Christmas drives this commercialism. And Christmas, really, now it's all about the presents, right? Especially for little kids waking up on Christmas morning. They can barely sleep Christmas Eve night. Their hearts are so filled with anticipation because they know the next morning under the tree there will be a load of treasure, a lot of treasure, and it will all be theirs. And they, they get excited. And can you just imagine, how would your kids react if on Christmas morning there was nothing? Just nothing. It's kind of like the story of the Grinch. And you know it, you've either read the book or you've, you've seen that little cartoon. It plays like ten, ten times a day this time of year. The Grinch, he's that furry little green creature. We don't know what he is, just a creature. And he hates joy. He's a recluse. He lives in a cave in the mountains. He's alone. Well, he does have a dog. And nothing infuriates him more than seeing the joy of Whoville down below, getting so excited and cheerful over the Christmas season. And so one year he decides to ruin their Christmas. He dresses up like Santa, complete with a sleigh, led by a reindeer, which, which is just his dog. And he sneaks into Whoville not to give them presents, but to steal their presents. And so it's called the Grinch, you know, who stole Christmas. All of their decorations and trees and presents and even their food, he just plucks away and escapes. And the kids, they wake up Christmas morning and they find nothing. And again, can you just imagine if, if that happened to your house? Like you got robbed Christmas Eve or something like that. And what if your kids woke up Christmas morning expecting a windfall of presents, but they found nothing? I mean, how would they react? What kind of a meltdown would there be? Would they think Christmas was ruined? Would they think this was the worst Christmas ever? Even as adults, you might react the same way. This Christmas, you probably expect to receive presents from your friends and family, one way or another. But what if all the people in your life ended up getting you nothing? 
this year? Would just a part of you be sad, disappointed? Would just even a part of you think, this, was, this wasn't a good Christmas this year, that part of Christmas was ruined this year because I didn't get my presents? A lot of adults would feel that way. And that's because, whether you like it or not, in our culture, American culture, Christmas is about the presents. Now, how did this happen? Where did this tradition come from? Have you ever wondered about that? Why do we do a lot of the things we do on, on Christmas, especially gift giving? How did this one day become all about giving and exchanging wealth? How did this enterprise begin of all the days of the year? Well, at the very least, we should know where our traditions came from, right or wrong, shouldn't we? And when your kids ask you why you do the things you do, hopefully you have a meaningful answer to give them. Hopefully there is a meaningful answer to give, right? Well, that's what we're going to try and find out today. Where where did this come from? Why do we do this? Should we do this? What do we need to keep in mind? These are important questions that that they're fair to ask, and they need answers, specifically this morning when it comes to this whole practice of, of gift giving. So that's what we're going to try and tackle, finding out what this is all about and how we should think about it. And I want you to start off with a question. Now, biblically, where do you think this whole tradition of giving gifts on Christmas came from? And if you have even a little bit of a Christian background, you're probably thinking the three kings. You know, come to Jesus Christmas morning, giving them their presents. And that's how it all got started, right? That, that's the roots of our gift-giving tradition. Well, it's a good place to start, so let's find out. So grab your Bibles, open them to Matthew 2. If you didn't bring one with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. You uh, It's the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to start there, Matthew chapter 2. Now, you probably know the basic timeline of the birth of Jesus. The angel comes, announces the virgin birth to Mary. She conceives, and before the time is due for her to deliver, her and Joseph, they must travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register for the census, but while in Bethlehem, time comes for the baby to be born, and Jesus is born. Angel tells a group of shepherds nearby that the Messiah has been born, so they go, they find him, they worship, and it's a done deal. Sounds good. We, we know that part of the story. What happens next? What happens after that? And that's what Matthew 2 tells us, what happens after all that. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and read now. We're going to read a, a big old chunk, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd his people, or my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. 
And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And that's, of course, as you know later, Herod wanted to kill the newborn king. That's another story. But here we have the account of the three magi, and it's from this account that people believe we derive our tradition of giving gifts on Christmas. So let's take a closer look. Now, two years ago, for my Christmas 2012 message, I debunked a lot of myths that surround the Christmas story. So I'm going to do a little recap for you, covering a lot of the myths surrounding these three magi, wise men, king figures. So a little recap. First, they weren't kings. The old hymn, We Three Kings, needs a title revision because nothing says or suggests they were kings. The word magi in the Greek, that is where we get our word magic from. But they weren't magicians. They most likely were astrologers. I guess you could call them wise men, so that's fair. But nothing gives the impression they were kings. That's just a misunderstanding from church tradition. Church tradition also tells us they came from India and Egypt and Greece, one each. But that's like almost certainly untrue. In all reality, they they most likely came from what used to be Babylon, some 700 miles away. Still a long journey. Another myth about the Magi is that there were three of them. And nowhere, anywhere in the Bible does it say there were three of them. People just assume there's three. Why? How many different types of gifts were given? Three. So people thought there must be three of them. But it doesn't actually say that. In fact, verse 3 tells us that when these guys came into Jerusalem, the whole town heard about them. They're in an uproar talking about the newborn king of the Jews. And it's not likely that three guys would make that big of a splash in all of Jerusalem. And furthermore, you don't travel 700 miles carrying all that treasure with just three guys. Most likely this was like a Middle Eastern caravan, lots of magi, servants, supplies. Probably was a big deal. Probably was a lot of guys. And we don't know for sure, but there's nothing telling us there were just three. Anyway, after they left Jerusalem, they were guided to Bethlehem, where they finally found the newborn king of the Jews, Jesus. And where did they find this baby Jesus? In a barn? In a stable? There's no mention of a barn or a stable in the Bible. Rather, here they found him, verse 11, what does it say? In a house. Found him in a house. Now, if you want to learn more about Jesus most likely being born in a house, it will really ruin your nativity scene. But... You can get the 2012 Christmas message. We covered that then. I can do that now. But one more myth about these magi that might really throw you for a loop is they didn't visit Jesus on his birthday. They weren't there on the day of his birth. They arrived several months after Jesus was already born. Remember, the first stop was not Bethlehem, but Jerusalem. And what does verse 1 say? When did they show up in Jerusalem? Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So after he's born, they get to Jerusalem saying, well, where is he? They were expecting the Jews to have accepted their newborn king and bring him to Jerusalem. But they didn't care about their king. Uh, we, we covered that in another time. But the point is, they came later. The question we ask is, well, how, how much later? How long after Jesus was born did they arrive? And it was at least a couple of months before they found him. Luke chapter 2 tells us that after Jesus was born, what happened? 
Well, eight days later, he was circumcised according to Jewish law. 33 days after that, Mary and Joseph took him to Jerusalem for the rites of purification, purification sacrifices, also according to Jewish law. You would offer up a, a one-year-old lamb and then a, a pigeon or a dove as a purification sacrifice for your newborn child. But the law state, stated that if you're really poor, you could just give two doves or two pigeons, and you don't have to do the lamb, which is you know like that upscale thing to do. So Mary and Joseph, what did they offer in, on behalf of Jesus? Well, Luke 2 tells us they offered two pigeons because they were poor. I mean, they were really poor. That also, though, leads us to believe that at that time the Magi had not have visited. Because remember, the, the Magi, they brought gifts of substantial wealth, like gold, frankincense, myrrh. That, those were meant to be sold and to provide them the ability to live. And so the point is, after the Magi visited, Joseph and Mary weren't poor anymore. And after this, they could have definitely afforded the, the better sacrifice for the offering. Now, we can't be dogmatic about this, but, but most likely they did not find Jesus until he was probably two months or older. At the very least, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, makes 100% certain that they did not find Jesus on his birthday. They weren't there on the night he was born. The shepherds were, but the Magi were not. Now again, I know this pokes holes in your nativity story that you saw acted out at your kid's school play, but this is, this is how it is. This is how it went. The Magi never made it to Christ's birthday party. Now, do they still give him gifts? I mean, is, is that true at least? Can we at least hold on to that one? And yeah, that's true. They did present to him their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Again, it's just representing substantial wealth. That's a lot of, of money they would have given. The real question to ask, though, is why? Why did they give him gifts? What's the point? You notice in verse 11, they didn't give their gifts to Mary or to Joseph. They gave them to, to Jesus, like this newborn infant. They're giving him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when you think about it that way, it seems really impractical. Like, What's a newborn baby going to do with a bar of gold or a jar of perfume, which is what frankincense was pretty much? It's like, how about some diapers? How about, you know, like a crib to replace the feeding trough he had been placed in, like something a little more practical. But these weren't gifts meant to be practical, like baby presents. They gave these gifts to Jesus for another reason. It's the same reason that when they saw him, they fell down to the ground. Because he was a king. These were gifts fit for a king. Jesus was born king of the Jews. What's really interesting, though, is that these magi weren't Jews. They were all Gentiles, but God had revealed to them that Jesus wasn't only the king of the Jews, he was also king of kings and lord of lords. And they had come to worship him. And that's what they did. They fell down to the ground because it's an expression of worship, and they gave him amazing gifts because it was an expression of worship fit for a king. It wasn't a birthday party. When they showed up, it was no longer his birthday. But it was still an occasion for great joy. And that's why verse 10 says, when they found him, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And that sounds a little redundant when you think about it. But Matthew is just piling on the terminology saying, they were really, really excited. They had finally found the king of the Jews, but the king of the world, the king of kings. And they were going to worship. That's what they did. And after they worshiped, spent some time, they returned home to their country, wherever it was not going to Herod. So that's, that's the story. That's the biblical story. That's the truth about these magi. 
And if you were here two years ago, you've heard that. If not, this may sound really new to you because all the Christmas songs we sing, they give us a lot of that you know, mythology that's not really from the Bible. But this is really how it went down. They didn't show up on his birthday. They came later and, and so forth. Now, that being said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to compare in your mind our modern tradition of giving gifts on Christmas with what the Magi did in Matthew 2. And just how similar are these practices? Our gift giving takes place on Christmas Day. Their gift giving did not take place on Christmas Day or even Christmas month. Our gift giving is supposedly in honor of Christ's birthday. Their gift giving had nothing to do with his birthday. It was in honor and recognition of him as a king. They gave gifts because he was a king. And additionally, our gift giving is to each other. But their gift giving was not to one another. It was not even to Mary or Joseph. It was all to Jesus. And that last point is quite ironic when you think about it. If our Christmas tradition traces back to what the Magi did, then we've got it all backwards. Because on Christmas, we give gifts to everyone except Jesus on Christmas morning. Like He's the only one that doesn't get anything. And that sounds kind of ridiculous when you think about it like that. And it kind of is ridiculous. Just, just picture the scene. It's your birthday. You're, you're turning 20. You're excited. You think you're an adult now. You're, you're looking forward to life. You're having a big party. You invite a hundred family and friends. You rent out a whole restaurant. I mean, you're excited. And secretly, you're even more excited because you know you're going to cash in. Like a hundred presents, gift cards, checks. Like You're going to get a lot of money from that birthday party. And you're excited about that. Well, the time comes in the party to open up gifts. And you see this table piled high with presents and cards. And people, they start passing out the gifts. And you think, oh, that's kind of odd. Why are they passing them out? And then you see people starting to exchange gifts with one another. You start wondering, like, why, why are they doing that? And then they start opening all your gifts. And now you're really confused. And you look a little more closely and you see that none of the gifts have your name on it. All these people came to your birthday party and they brought gifts for one another. Nobody brought you anything. And now they're opening all the gifts, they're celebrating, they're laughing, they're having a good time. You're in the corner. You're ignored, you're by yourself, no one pays any attention to you, and they're just they're having a party without you now. And when you think about it, that's pretty much like Christmas when it comes to the birthday of Jesus, celebrating the birthday of Jesus. I mean, for most families, not all, but for most families, this day, on this day, Jesus, he's not in the celebration. He's not in the picture. He receives nothing. Now, it's not like we can send to Jesus a literal present via like heaven mail or something like that. But there are a few things he does want from us, like honor, adoration, worship, glory, praise, you know, stuff like that. But from most families, he doesn't even receive this. He's ignored, he's forgotten, and on his supposed birthday, people focus on themselves. They give gifts to others, they fully expect to get gifts in return. And do you see a problem with that? See maybe a little problem with that? At the very least, our modern tradition of gift giving certainly does not derive from what the Magi did. Sorry to burst your bubble. The only link between the two is the concept of giving gifts, but apart from that, nothing else is the same. People like to think that they're honoring the tradition of the Magi, the wise men, that the spirit of giving, but they're not. 
what we do today really has nothing to do with what the Magi did back then. And further, when you study the rest of Scripture, you'll find that there's no biblical precedent for what we do on Christmas morning when it comes to giving gifts. The whole practice of exchanging gifts in honor of the birth of Christ, or for any reason they're, they're, uh, thereafter, it's not found in the Bible. So again, what we're trying to do this morning, our quest, is just trying to think about and evaluate this tradition of giving gifts on Christmas. Where does it come from? Why do we do it? Should we do it? And so far, we, we've turned from Scripture to see if this tradition can be found. And everyone's knee-jerk response is to say, well, it's three kings, of course, the Magi. I mean, that's why we do it. But no, we've discovered, actually, that's not why we do it. It really doesn't have anything to do with that. Nowhere in the Bible is there any practice or description or prescription resembling anything like what we do on Christmas with gifts. Now, the next question then, well, where did it come from? If it doesn't come from the Bible, why do we do it? Where did this tradition come from? It's another fair question. I mean, you think you'd want to know that. I would. And so from this, since it's not in the Bible, we have to turn to the pages of history. So I'm going to give you a little brief, brief history lesson here. Where did this come from? Well, first off, the early church, like the first couple hundred years of the church, they did not practice giving gifts on Christmas. In fact, they didn't even celebrate Christmas at all. Christmas wasn't a holiday back then. They focused on the death of Christ, the resurrection, but not on his birth. It wasn't until the 4th century that Christmas rose in importance. Now that's a sermon for another day. But the practice of exchanging gifts began around the 4th century. You might remember, that's when the Roman Empire became Christian. became the Holy Roman Empire. Remember that? And so they sought to do away with their old pagan traditions. To do that, they assimilated a lot of the pagan traditions into the church and they Christianized them. Several of our Christmas traditions started this way, which includes gift giving. Back then, the the pagans celebrated winter solstice and one of the things they did was exchange gifts. Winter solstice, it's the shortest day of the year, which also means it marks the return of the sun. And as a side note, today is winter solstice, December 21st. But anyway, Christians, they took this over and they used it as an occasion to celebrate the return, not of the Son, but of the Son of God. Just great imagery. That's fitting imagery. Nothing wrong with that. Christmas became a holy day or a holiday used to remember the ultimate gift of God, which is his Son, Jesus the Christ, who came to earth. There's a lot more to say about the origins of Christmas here, but when it comes to gift giving, that's its earliest roots. Of course, back then, exchanging gifts, it was very modest and meager, not like the, the crazy commercialism of today. But, but our practice of exchanging gifts goes back to the religious tradition of the 4th century. Christmas became an official Christian holiday, a religious tradition that was geared to help Christians and all of society recognize and remember the Savior. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We, we need occasions to remember and celebrate the Lord and even his, his entrance into the world. So that's not a problem. But over the years, after that, Jesus fell out of focus when it came to Christmas. And another figure rose to great prominence on Christmas. Can you guess who that figure was? Good old Saint Nick. Saint Nicholas. He became the key figure of the winter season. Nicholas was a bishop from Lycia in Turkey during the 4th century. 
He was famous for just giving generous gifts to the poor and the children. And centuries later, the Catholic Church then made him a saint and gave him a day, a special day for his celebration, January 6th. And because of Nicholas's gift-giving heritage, this day soon captured the tradition of giving gifts, especially to children. And to this day, many people in Europe and other places, they still celebrate St. Nicholas's Day on January 6th, just like we celebrate Christmas, they exchange gifts on January 6th. In fact, my grandma, who was born and raised in Italy, she told us that's what they did. They did all their gifts on January 6th. And it wasn't long before January 6th, St. Nicholas's Day, eclipsed December 25th, which became Christmas Day. And why is that? It's because it doesn't matter what century you're living in, children love getting presents. They love it. And if you give them a ton of presents all in one day, they will love that day above all others. And if you tell them that day is in honor of St. Nicholas, they will love that guy above all others. It's just there's no two ways about it. The Catholic Church had no problem with this. They didn't mind what's called the veneration of saints, like worshiping saints. They have no problem with that. And even though in many ways St. Nicholas was receiving more honor and adoration than Jesus. Well, fast forward a little bit. Along came the Reformation in Europe. Can you remember that? Like the 1500s, Martin Luther, they broke from the Catholic Church. They returned to the Bible alone, and they reformed many of the church's traditions. And Martin Luther himself sought to reform Christmas, Christmas itself. In Germany, they they did away with January 6th, a celebration of St. Nicholas. Luther couldn't stand anything that had to do with venerating saints or worshiping dead guys. I mean... It's another story, but anyway. Luther, though, he didn't abolish the tradition of giving gifts. He didn't do away with it. He just moved it from January 6th to December 24 or 25. And the gift giver had become to be thought of as St. Nicholas, but he changed that as well. The gift giver was now in Germany, Christkind. I know I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's a German word. I don't know how to pronounce German. But Christkind, the word means Christ child. They pictured Christ as giving gifts and a way to remember him and the ultimate gift of salvation. So Luther, he actually sought to keep the traditions, but he wanted to make sure they had a Christ-centered focus. And that's a good thing. And that's the point of religious tradition to begin with. There's nothing wrong with having traditions, but they must not go against Scripture And they should put our focus back on God. So Luther reformed Christmas once again, and he recaptured a focus on Christ. Luther understood the value of traditions. I mean, look, we have enough distractions taking us away from the Lord. If we're going to have any traditions at all, we need them to bring our minds back to the Lord, not taking us away from the Lord. On Christmas, we need a time that we remember Christ is coming to the world And like the Magi, we we worship. That's what we really do. We worship on Christmas. And granted, that's something we should do every day. Remember the Lord and worship. But having a rich, Christ-centered Christmas tradition, it only sharpens our focus on the Lord. So in an interesting turn of events, historically, gift-giving became a part of now the Christmas tradition, not the St. Nick tradition, but the Christmas tradition. And the focus was on Christkind, or the Christ child. Gift-giving became an occasion to remember Christ. But that didn't last. 
That didn't last too long after the Reformation. You see, that this is a German tradition. Luther is German. And it started to migrate around Europe. And by the time it was translated into English, this word got lost in translation. Christkind, in English, became Chris Kringle. And this name, even though it came from the German word actually talking about Christ, now we all think that's what? That's the proper name of Santa Claus. And see, in English, that name got applied back to St. Nicholas, who himself had to become Santa Claus by another whole translation issue. And so it all kind of was reverted. The day of gift giving, though, was now December 24th to 25th, but Jesus wasn't the focus. It was Santa Claus. He reigned supreme on that day. And how many kids still, in a very real sense, thank and even worship Santa Claus on Christmas morning? They give him their their love, their honor, their adoration, their respect. still happens. This problem, though, really skyrocketed in the 1800s and the 1900s. Getting closer to what it's like today. Like I said earlier, for kids, Christmas, it's all about the presents. And therefore, it's all about Santa, because he's the bearer of the presents. In the past 200 years, the mythology of Santa Claus really exploded and then became commercialized. In the 1820s, stores began to run Christmas ads in the newspapers. In 1823, The Night Before Christmas was published. And that that poem set the standard for a lot of the legends around Santa Claus. He flew, he rode on a sleigh with flying reindeer. He would land on a roof, shimmy down the chimney somehow with his big bag of toys. And that's still how we think of him. Then along came Thomas Nast. He's an American cartoonist in the 1800s. And he really made popular the imagery of Santa Claus, you know, the, the plump older fellow in a red suit, with a white beard, still how we picture him. And you know, you know the picture. 1834, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol was published. And it's still a holiday classic. I really love that story, Christmas Carol. But you'll notice that the moral of that story has nothing to do with Jesus. It presents a humanistic Christmas that's all about family and goodwill and generosity, and all that's fine, but Dickens essentially essentially promoted a Christmas without Christ, even though, ironically, he's the one who coined the phrase Merry Christmas. But it was a secularized Christmas, and it was starting to catch on. Christmas without Christ. And I can say more, but lastly, I'll just mention that ubiquitous song from 1934, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, And don't ever underestimate the power that music has to change culture. And that song really made popular this whole belief that Santa can see you while you're sleeping. He's got a list. He separates kids into naughty and nice, and he gives toys to the good ones. And by the 1900s, the Christmas tradition surrounding Santa Claus was firmly established. But Christmas celebrations were still tame. Dinner wasn't that extravagant. Christmas trees were very rare, and the presents were very modest. Again, I remember my grandma growing up in Italy. She she would tell me that on Christmas, or their Christmas, she received an orange in her stocking. That's it. Can you you just imagine getting an orange for Christmas, and that's it? But they were excited. They were happy. Anyway, that all changed after the 1950s in America. That's the big turning point. The middle class boomed. Prosperity was on the rise, and Christmas became super commercialized. Christmas became a serious event. Parents began spending hundreds, if not thousands, on Christmas presents. Uh, 
Stores were happy to cash in. They started staying open till midnight on Christmas Eve. And now, of course, we've got Black Friday. Now we have Black Friday week and more. And Christmas, it's not even a single day anymore. It's a three-month season. And what's at the center of the season? Money. Money is, because it comes back to presents, shopping, spending, the whole nine yards. And Christ, now, he's pretty much out of the picture in America. In our culture, Santa is back on top. He's reigning supreme. You can find a Santa in every single mall, but nativity scenes are banned. They're not even allowed. Just think about that one. Does that seem right, given you know what this is supposed to be about? And to make matters worse, the mythology of Santa Claus has made him into like a godlike figure. You know, he can see you while you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows all the good and bad things you've done. First off, that's kind of creepy for an older guy. And secondly, that makes him omniscient. He's like omniscient, just like God is omniscient. And furthermore, on Christmas Eve, he can deliver presents to billions of people. That makes him omnipresent, like God is omnipresent. And the effect in all is that Santa, he's basically worshipped like God, especially by children. And look, you, you can't get around it. If on a single day of the year you give your kids hundreds of dollars worth of presents and then you tell them it came from Santa, they will worship Santa. Even if you say, no, sweetie, this, is really, this day is really a day about you know, remembering the birth of Jesus, it will fall on deaf ears. They see the mountain of presents, came from Santa, I love Santa more than this Jesus guy. He gives me what I want. There's no way around it. And to tell you the truth, adults aren't that different. We, we may not care too much about Santa, but if your heart finds more delight in the stuff you receive on Christmas than the Savior you're supposed to remember, really no different. I talked about the Grinch earlier. But in reality, you want to know something. The real Grinch who stole Christmas, is Santa Claus. Santa Claus is the Grinch who stole Christmas. And throughout all of history, this figure has largely contributed to the robbing of Christmas of its religious significance. Now granted, Christmas, it's not a biblical holiday. It's not. If you choose not to celebrate it at all, you'd be doing no wrong. You're not sinning. You're not breaking one command. Go for it. But, It is a day of great religious, traditional significance that even our secular culture understands commemorates the birth of Christ. And as Christians, above all people, we need to restore the focus of the day on the Lord, don't we? Tradition is not wrong, so long as it does not overturn the word of God. But we need traditions that take us back to the Lord, not draw us away from the Lord. We've got enough distractions in life pulling us away from God. If we're going to have any traditions at all, any special days, we need ones that bring our focus squarely back on the Lord. And in reality, Christ needs to be our focus every day. But if you're going to participate in the tradition surrounding his birth, then this one day should really be focused on him. Christ must not be removed from Christmas. So this morning, you're going to have to come to terms with a few things, if you haven't already. You need to accept that a lot of what we do at Christmas time doesn't come from the Bible. It's partly a cultural tradition, partly a religious tradition. But that doesn't make it wrong. But you have to be careful, you have to be discerning. Whether our traditions are right or wrong, good or bad, that largely depends. It depends. 
It depends on whether they enhance the Lord's role in our life or they detract from the Lord's role in our life. Do our traditions bring God glory and honor at all or not? Is God at the center and is he remembered and is he revered? Or is God put on a shelf, he's commemorated with a nice little wooden nativity scene, but he's never thought of again? And for unbelievers, we know Christmas is just a, a, a cultural day of, of revelry, partying. Okay, that's fine. But as Christians, the day is meant to be one of reflection on the Lord, remembrance, and worship. If you really want to take part in a tradition, go back to the Magi and worship Jesus as you remember him. Now at this point, I know you're wondering one last thing. You're probably thinking, am I saying that it's wrong for us to participate in any of the trappings of Christmas? And am I even saying that we shouldn't give gifts on Christmas, even to our kids? Actually, no. I'm not saying that. I'm not going to resort to legalism and make new rules. The Bible doesn't make those rules. I'm not going to make those rules. But it is a fair question for you to ask yourself and for you to answer before the Lord yourself, which you all must do. If you and your family have been so radically captivated by the stuff of Christmas You've missed the substance of Christmas. I don't know. Maybe you do need to do something radical to change that for your family. Maybe instead of the frenzy of opening gifts, you spend more time focusing on the Lord, doing some worship as a family together. Again, I don't know, but maybe that's something you need to do. I certainly would challenge, though, the mentality of making Christmas all about the gifts. Because it's not. You control how small or how large a role that plays on Christmas. You control the level of anticipation your your kids have over it. So I don't know, maybe one of these years you need to, quote-unquote, ruin Christmas in order to ratchet your family back to remembering this is a day for the Lord, not just us and our stuff. Maybe you do your gift-giving on a different day. I don't know. You have to think about this yourself. But the Lord is the most important thing. And at the same time, though, I also strongly encourage people to redeem Christmas traditions. Like the church did in the 4th century, like Martin Luther did in the Reformation. I'm a big proponent of attaching biblical significance to traditions and taking them back and redeeming them. And tradition, it's a tricky thing. In the Bible, the Jews got it wrong. They used their, their man-made traditions to overturn God's word. And we don't, we don't want to do that. But tradition isn't necessarily bad. Traditions can be useful like a yearly reminder. And we we need that sometimes. So can we redeem our traditions and fashion them in such a way that they put our focus back on the Lord? Tradition really is in the eye of the beholder. You make it whatever you want to make it for your family. You define it. It's up to you. So I would encourage you to turn everything you do into an object lesson for yourself and your family, helping them remember the Lord. Hey, you've got a star sitting on top of your Christmas tree. Use that to remember God's sovereignty in guiding the Magi to the newborn king. And then you've got a tree. When you think about it, why on earth would you cut down a perfectly good tree and put it in your living room in honor of Christmas? Like, Where does that come from? That actually itself has pagan roots for another day, another sermon, right? But look, I know that's not why you and I put a Christmas tree in our house. You're not doing it to honor those pagan roots. Why do you do a Christmas tree? I'll tell you why. Because you did it as a kid. You have fond memories of it. makes your kids happy. It's fun. That's why you do it. Right? That's why you do it. 
But can you infuse the tree with some redemptive meaning? You can. And each year with our Christmas tree, I, I honestly remember in my mind Christ Jesus who died on a tree for us. And how the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But Jesus endured that curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. That's Galatians 3.13. I know that's not the origin of the Christmas tree tradition, but that's how I use it. That's how you can use it. You can redeem your traditions like this. You can use them to remember God. And I would encourage you to do that with, with gift giving. You have to be careful with gift giving because when you're dealing with money and possessions, it's too easy to fall into covetousness and greed, right? It's not wrong to exchange gifts. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. Knock yourself out. But beware those sins. And if you feel them taking a hold of you, then repent and do something to change because that, that's obviously not right. And I, again, I don't know, maybe you do need to do something radical with your gift-giving tradition in order to keep the focus on the Lord. If, it, if it's too big of a deal... Maybe you do need to do something. Or use a time of gift giving to teach your kids and for yourself to remember God's ultimate gift. I mean, forget the Magi. Let's talk about the gift that God gave on Christmas. That's the real gift we're talking about, isn't it? The gift of Christ himself, God's son given to the world. God himself gave the ultimate gift on Christmas, right? The gift of John 3.16, the verse everyone knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the real gift of Christmas, right? You nod, right. And roughly 2,000 years ago, God put into motion his eternal plan of redemption. The Bible says all of us have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're sinners, we're sinful creatures. We've fallen short of God's glory we live in rebellion against him. We go our own way. And our sin brings guilt before a truly holy and righteous God. And this guilt brings condemnation. We're all condemned. We will all face a certain judgment and there's nothing we can do about it because we're not good enough. We're not righteous. We're not holy like God is holy. We sin. We fall short. And so we're lost. We're dead in our trespasses and sins according to Scripture. And we can't do anything. But God... He can do something. And in great love, he did do something. That's why he sent his son, born of a virgin, on Christmas morning. He sent him for us. And what makes Jesus so special to us is not just his birth, but it's his death. And that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. On the cross, he was taking our huge debt of sin that we can't do anything about. That sin is going to send us to hell. But he took it and he paid the penalty. He wiped it away. He took it on himself on the cross. He bore the curse for us. Now he stands in victory after rising from the dead. And he's able to offer all those who come to him forgiveness of sins. And not an eternal death, but an eternal life. A new life. A changed life. And God promises that if you repent of your sins, you turn away from what you're living for, and you turn to Him, you follow Christ by faith as Lord of your life, He will give you the greatest gift. It's the gift of salvation, the gift of new birth, reconciliation. And for those of us who have believed 
we, we hold on to this, we, we, we hold this dear. For us, we want to remember this gift every day. I mean, forget Christmas. We should be remembering that gift and what God did for us every day. But especially on Christmas, we want to reflect and remember God's gift of life, which he gave to the world and for those who have believed, especially to us. That's what Christmas is all about. It's always appropriate to examine yourself and your traditions. I know for some of you, the sermon may be kind of a downer, put a little spoil on some of your traditions. not meant to, but you have to honestly examine the things you do. Shouldn't we? We should, as Christians, want to be doing things that are right, that don't take us away from the Lord. And so just examine yourself. You have to consider if on Christmas morning, if there were no presents, would your kids say Christmas was ruined? Would you say Christmas was ruined? If so, somewhere along the line, you've gone astray from what Christmas is all about. doesn't mean gifts are wrong. Gifts are fun. We still exchange gifts. But we know that's not what Christmas is about, and it doesn't take us that direction. Somewhere along the line, if you've fallen prey to Santa and the ways of the world, which constantly steer us away from the Lord, then it is time for change, Lord willing. Fight against this. Steer yourself and steer your family back to God. Follow the Magi to the feet of Jesus and then bow down and give him a gift of yourself, a living sacrifice, a life lived unto him. That's what the Lord wants. I start off by telling you about the Grinch who stole Christmas. At least he thought he stole Christmas. You remember the ending of the story. He successfully robbed Whoville of all their decorations and presents. But come Christmas morning, what happened? Well, the Grinch expected to hear the sorrowful cries of the Who's down below, but much to his confusion, he found them singing a joyous Christmas song around the tree. And it dawns on him that maybe Christmas is more than feasting and presents. The children's book stops short of an explicit Christmas message or or Christ-centered message here, but the imagery is fitting because indeed it's true. Take away all the, the presents, the decorations, the food, even the friends and family. You don't take away Christmas. That's not what Christmas is ultimately about. You can't take away the Lord. Christmas is about him. And we have an occasion to rejoice Even if nothing else happens on that day, we have something to to smile about, to thank the Lord about, to remember. For us, we know that we can participate in tradition, but we know the day is about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Every day is to be the Lord's day. Every day is to be lived unto his glory. But on Christmas, we want to aim to give him uh, an extra measure of our praise. So let's do that this Christmas. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you for this word. I, I trust, as your word often does, and the truth that comes from it, sometimes it convicts, sometimes it pricks our conscience and gets us thinking, but that's a good thing. Because what is this life about? What is our new life about? It's about you. The God who has redeemed us is worthy of our lives, worthy of praise and adoration and respect. And you, you, You're the one who gave us the real gift. Lord, free us from the stuff of this world. It's not, it all will pass away. There's nothing wrong with with enjoying what the good things the world has to offer, but the only thing that lasts is you and your people, and we want we desire that, that greater glory. So give us a, a passion for you, a greater passion for you, and if we enjoy the traditions of the year, then may we put a Christ-centered focus on them, leading ourselves and our families to, to remember you, and that's what it, this time is all about. 
So we do that now. I pray as we leave here, we can reflect on Christ and the gift given and how our lives should be lived in light of him. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ by which we stand and live and are redeemed and uh, have our new lives. We lift this, this day up to you, Christmas Day as well, this whole week, for your praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.